Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli, and today is part two of my interview with Ken McElroy, Rich Dad Advisor. Great guy, smart, full of wisdom, extremely successful. If you haven't listened to the first episode with me and Ken, that was last week. Just listen to that episode. It's number 95, I believe. And so today we're going to continue with part two of my interview with Ken McElroy. So stay tuned for that. And here we go. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. So, you know, you and I both look at job growth and population growth at a macro level when it comes to analyzing markets. But obviously, you probably do the same thing I do. I look at neighborhoods after that. That's kind of my next step. And so regarding neighborhoods, do you have a neighborhood preference? Did you have to modify the types of neighborhoods that you're looking at in order to find deals because of the cap rate compression and lowered inventories? So... I take a little bit different view on this. I think what happens a lot of times with real estate investors is that they tend to go look for really good deals with low down payments. Well, that's not a bad thing. Usually that's on the outside of town. They're trying to minimize their down payment. And I completely understand that. Uh-huh. But I do the opposite. I'm trying to find rental demand in affluent areas. Okay. So I'm going to be paying more. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, for the most part, we like to stick to B, B plus type neighborhoods, maybe A minus, at least the way we categorize them. I see so many investors making the mistake, in my opinion, of investing in C and God forbid D type neighborhoods where we're looking at 40, 50, maybe $60,000 properties, you know, call it per door, per unit, however you want to look at it. Because if it's an apartment building, you can still say it's a $40,000 apartment. But the challenge there, in my opinion, is you're dealing with a tenant class and a demographic that is far more challenging. And by putting less down in order to, quote unquote, save money on your down payment is actually a huge mistake because you're buying yourself headaches down the road. Is that how you feel about this? Yeah. I mean, what I found is that while you might pay less, you're going to have a lot more management problems. Right. Not always, honestly, not always. I mean, I'm a big fan of low-income housing, actually, and I think it's needed and it's necessary and it can be managed really, really well. But if you're trying to, you know, I always try to say you can never manage your way out of a bad neighborhood. Right. <laughs> it's just is never going to happen. So I met with a the mayor of Phoenix, and they had 10 properties that they had targeted as bad landlords. And I went and looked at them because I said, hey, let me go take a look at them and maybe we can buy them all and turn them all around and and infuse some cash. And we know we can do them. It's called a private-public partnership opportunity. And so we went and looked at them. And I got to tell you, Marco, I wouldn't touch them. Some of them I didn't want to get out of the car. Yeah, I wasn't afraid of the deferred maintenance or anything like that. But you can tell if there's gangs and crime. And so what happens is, as you can imagine, 
a family is not going to move into a neighborhood like that unless they absolutely positively have to. Right. And in some cases they do have to. But the, the point is, is that I want to deal with the tenants that are living where they want to live. And it's a lot safer because those are the people that pay their rent on time and they take care of their place and stuff like that. So that's what I mean. But a lot of people don't do that. You know, they go into markets, they buy cheap and then their occupancies are down and the delinquencies are high and they have lots of deferred maintenance yeah. issues and they complain and they say, oh, real estate's not a good deal. And well, really it ended up, ends up being a poor decision on where they invested. Well, I guess a follow-up question to that is about demographics. How closely do you look at the demographics of the people in the neighborhoods you're, you're analyzing? Oh, very close. I mean, okay, so that's- before I buy any building, I actually pull every single lease and every single application and see where they work. Interesting. To me, I think that the neighborhood quality and the demographics of the tenant base in a particular neighborhood weighs heavily on how well that asset will perform and how much headache you're going to have in the years to come in owning that property. So looking at the market, the jobs and the population growth and all that stuff is important, but I can be in the best market in the country. And if I'm looking at a terrible neighborhood or a questionable or sketchy neighborhood, I'm not even going to consider it any further. I have to be in a good neighborhood where I know that there's stability going forward. Right. You're going to get a better tenant there. Absolutely. And I I don't want the tenant headaches. I don't want management headaches, even though I don't manage my own properties. I just don't want to hear them. I find so many people that are short-sighted when evaluating a deal, they get too caught up in the financials, financials on paper, or the looks of the property, which boggles my mind. Kind of briefly, what are the metrics you look for when you're evaluating a real estate deal? What's most important to you in that analysis? Once it passes the, do I even want to be in this market? The smell test. Uh, Yeah. So that actually eliminates a lot. Once it passes that, some of the things that I like to look for are, oddly enough, school system. I like to know a lot about that. So we have a property in Plano, Texas that we bought. And Plano has the number one rated school district in the state of Texas, and it's an affluent area. So the homes are a million bucks or say 500 to a million bucks. And there's not a lot of apartments. And so people move to our apartments that can't afford a home that want their kids to have a good education. And so they specifically move into the apartments into the Plano school district. That's an interesting one. It's not one that a lot of people think of, which is why I brought it up. Aside from that, we look at unit mixes in our apartments. So I don't want two heavy one bedrooms. In other words, I don't want half the property as one bedrooms or two bedroom, one bath. There are certain unit types inside of apartment buildings that you want to stay away from because they're harder to lease. You know, you want to a good mix of one, twos, and three bedrooms. We look at the actual physical asset from that standpoint. When we're evaluating it, we take a look at the capital issues. You know, I try to avoid things. I try to avoid boilers, anything that are central heat or central water, because those boilers can be very, very expensive, very expensive to run Mm -hmm. and also very expensive to maintenance and very expensive to replace. So we try to not buy anything like that or that has flat roofs. Those are some of the things. If the apartments are too small or even if they're too big, those can be problems. 
There's just a number of things that we look at as we're evaluating each one. How important is the uh, cap rate and the potential cash on cash return in your evaluation? I don't think the cap rate's too important personally. I mean, a lot of people throw that term around. It is important, but it's not anything that I hang my hat on at all because I, I think that the cash on cash is the most important thing. So, so especially we just raised 15 million bucks to break ground on a new property that we're, we're building on here in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I think you have to take a look at what kind of investment that you're making and how much you're going to return to your investors. Mm-hmm. So that's what cash flow is. And so if the property produces, let's say you're making a million dollar investment into something and it produces a hundred thousand a year in cash flow, then you've got a 10% cash on cash for your investor. Mm-hmm. And I'm a long-term hold guy, which is why I don't really concern myself with cap rates too much. And, and also I'm usually a value add too, which means that when I'm looking at a deal, I'm, I'm looking for opportunities to grow the rent over a period of time. I'll buy a 4% cap rate property that's in trouble all day long and turn it into a very profitable asset. The reason it's at 4% is because it's not running very well. Yeah. You make a great, great point. And that is so many investors are focused on what is the year one cap rate and what is the year one cash flow. And positive cash flow is very important, of course. But you're saying you're looking at what the property's potential is in the years to come, years three, five, seven, ten, because you can make improvements to that property, increase its net operating income, increase its cap rate, increase its cash flow and rate of return to investors. And even if you really didn't have to do too much of that, rents probably, highly likely, will increase over the years. So you're going to get higher cap rates and better performing assets as time goes on. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, well, cap rates only matter when you're buying and you're selling and you're probably raising money. True. So, you know, everybody talks about the exit cap rate or whatever. You know, I'm a long-term, hardcore investor for cash flow. And I've got numerous examples. I bought a building in San Antonio that was 680 units. And there were 300 vacant. Wow. And it was owned by Bank of America. Okay. What do you think the cap rate was on that? <laughs> it didn't even register, but I, I smell a lot of opportunity in a deal like that. That's my point. So, you know, I bought it. The note, I think the, they owed, it's like a $25 million note. We got them to write off five of it. So I think we got them to write down the note to 20 and I put $7.5 million into that property and we had to evict another 100 people. So we had 400 vacants in 90 days after we bought it. So does who wants a 680 unit with 400 vacants? Nobody, right? You know, there's no cap rate. It doesn't even cash flow. Right. But a year and a half later, it appraised for 42 million. I mean, we created $15 million of value on something in less than two years, and we still own it today. It kicks off eight or $900,000 a year in cash flow. And guess what? The investors have all gotten their money back because when I got to 42 million, I put new debt on it. I put like 35 million bucks back on debt and which the property could cover. So I paid back the 20 to Bank of America. I paid the seven and a half back that I had raised plus another six or seven million bucks. And now the investors are getting eight or nine hundred thousand dollars a year of cash flow. 
you know, and they don't even have any money invested in, and they got that money back tax free because it was a refinance. That's so, right. That's right. So what's the cap rate on that? Does it really matter? No, it doesn't. So I love your thinking. So that deal there is a true nothing down deal. I mean, ultimately you cashed out and pulled everything out after a year and a half, which is amazing. And I mean, I wish you could find those all day long. Correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like the two most important things that you look at are cash flow, positive cash flow, and the location slash neighborhood of a property because that plays into its future potential and and the lack of hassles going forward. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm looking for opportunities to grow value for everyone. Okay, I love it. All right, I'm going to have to tweet some of these uh, quotes that you've just said. These are fantastic. You know, as we kind of get down into the home stretch here, uh, a few things I want to talk about. You know, Robert Kiyosaki likes to say that real estate is a team sport, and I wholeheartedly believe that because I built my business model here for the last 14 years around that whole concept of having the right people on the right seats on the bus. And I like to say, when it comes to property management, that you live and die by your property manager. And that's probably a strong statement, but I like to just say it. So 99% of our investor clients live remotely, and they use professional managers to manage their assets. My question to you is, having been in the property management space for as long as you have, what tips or suggestions could you share to help our audience who are remote investors and do not manage the properties themselves? The number one issue that all properties have is putting the wrong tenant in a unit. Mm -hmm. So we run criminal credit and actually sex offender checks too on every single tenant. So we do five to 600 a month, actually probably more than that now, but we run the credit on everybody. And, And I think what happens a lot of times, and this sounds so simple, But it's true. It's no different than what you just saw with the housing crisis. They were extending credit to people that couldn't afford the mortgage. And so when you extend credit to people that can't afford rent, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a problem. So that's by far the number one issue is that when property management folks get into a rush, I actually use third-party management on, I have about 20 condos that I own. Actually, I got 10 of them in Vegas from my condo conversion days. And Uh I use a residential realtor guy that's a property manager. And he has to call me up and we just have to talk about the tenant that we're putting in that particular unit. And so he knows that he's going to have to talk to me about where they're working, what they're doing, are they moving out of a house? What's their credit history? That's the only time I speak to him. The rest is easy because those people pay rent and everything works from there. And so that's probably, I would say, the very biggest issue. The other one, of course, is just responsiveness because there are things that happen inside of a units, you know, whether it's a clogged toilet or a stove that's broken or a refrigerator that goes down sure. or whatever or a flood. And so you do need, generally, I like to have a property manager that has the team, as you mentioned earlier, their team of people that can be responsive immediately because those are the kinds of things that people move out for. Yeah. You know, they're your customer. I mean, people don't realize this, but if somebody's paying $1,000 a month, you know, it's a $12,000 a month commitment. That's a lot of money annually that somebody's paying you and they deserve the attention and the respect 
to maintain the property and to pour money back into it and to communicate with them on every way. And so usually the breakdown on turnover has to do with eviction or late payments or not enforcing the rules or poor maintenance. You know, those are usually the case. Yeah. As landlords, you have to look at your tenants as customers because they are. They're your customers. And it's your responsibility as a landlord to provide safe, clean, and functional housing. And that's your end of the bargain. Their end of the bargain is to pay that $1,000 a month, $12,000 a year in exchange for that safe, clean, functional housing that you provide. So absolutely, they're customers. I totally agree. Now, just wrapping up that question, would you say you're managing your managers or are you just providing some guidelines in terms of tenant screening and qualification? I'm not managing them at all. So we have very specific guidelines. As you can imagine, the credit screening business is pretty automated these days, just like it is for credit score around buying a home. So there are certain things that you can be flexible on. And one of ours is, for example, they have to make three times their rent. And then you get into their credit and things like that. There are certain things that uh, we're flexible on and certain things that we're not flexible on. But from there, I'm not too particular. Okay. Just a quick question about one of the myths you have in your book, The ABCs of Real Estate Investing. You know, one of the myths you have is you have to know a lot about real estate. And this comes up with us from time to time, but more often than I'd like. Some investors we speak with, and of course, others that I'm sure we don't ever hear from, think that they don't know enough, when in reality, they know enough. And if they just surround themselves with the right team, they would certainly know enough and and be on a fast learning curve. What advice can you give people that feel this way or maybe just sitting on the fence right now? I think it's a pretty normal response. I think I see it all the time. I think that people want to know everything before they do anything. And, (laughs) you know, I call it analysis paralysis. Now, I do understand. I just actually mentored somebody here recently on this exact issue. And they were completely freaked out because they'd never had a tenant before and all that stuff. And I walked them through it. And now they're like, they text me the other day and they're like, oh my God, I this, you know, I mean, the guy was a marshal, U.S. marshal, and his wife was a teacher. They have one small kid. And I was <laughs> like, and I go, see, it's not that big of a deal. If you, if you find the right people, there are very good people out there that need good, clean housing. And they were very clear with her and said, we're, he's apparently here on an, an assignment. So he's only going to be in Arizona for about 10 months. So she knows she's going to have a vacancy in 10 months, but that's how good tenants communicate. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And so I just say, I think everybody has that fear to answer your question always. You know, they think, what do you see on TV and what do you read? You read all the horror stories and that's such a small percentage and you deserve it, by the way, if you rent to those people. Yeah. (laughs) But if you don't, it can be an incredible experience. I personally, I have 10,000 tenants. And so I don't know of the last time, I mean, this is probably three or four years, where I've ever even talked to my managers about evictions. Wow. That's impressive. You know, we don't even discuss it. It's not even a topic. Uh huh. It's because if you put the right person in, they're going to give you notice and they're going to be communicating with you. They're going to pay their rent on time. And so it's just not even a topic. Yeah. And, you know, and again, I'm going to repeat what I said before. I think. A big part of that has to do with being in the right neighborhood because you will attract the right demographic and tenant class. 
And second, like I say, you live and die by your property manager. Having the right management company that can properly screen and qualify tenants will save you a lot of grief. It becomes hassle-free or virtually hassle-free. It can be, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of variables, as you know. Sure. People are people. Yep, they are. But I think generally, it's like anything, honestly. It's like, I mean, if you're going to learn how to play golf, you don't know anything about it. It's the same. It's You just don't know anything about it. But if you find a good, great golf instructor, you're going to learn. And if you find a great property manager, you're going to learn. And you just got to find good people that are going to work with you. And then you become educated through them. Uh, there's really incredible people out there doing incredible work all over the place. Yep. And you just got to find them. And it doesn't matter, honestly, if you're writing a book or playing golf or buying a piece of real estate. If you put yourself around the right folks that are helping you, it'll be a positive experience. Yeah, for sure. So Ken, in wrapping this up, we just started a new year. I'm a big believer in setting and writing out my goals. I do it all the time. I mention it quite a bit on this podcast to help drill the point home for people because I really want people to just take and stop for a moment, think about what it is they want to achieve, write it on a piece of paper and stick it in your wallet or put it on your iPhone, read it every day because there's a tremendous amount of power in your subconscious mind. Just a quick tip from you, what comment or advice would you like to share to help people get on track and stay the course with their financial goal setting? I mean, you hear this all the time. You hear, you know, start small. And I'm a big believer of that. I think you should start small in your neighborhood that you live in or the neighborhood that you understand the most. Maybe it's somewhere you grew up. Even Kim Kiyosaki, you know, because obviously I now very, very good friends with Robert and Kim. And she said her very first goal was to buy one rental house in the first year. That was all in Portland, Oregon. And they bought a two bedroom, two one bath house in Portland, Oregon. And I think that if you set your goal like something like that, even if you don't have the money, you will do it. Because as I like to say, good investors show up for good deals. And most of the time, Marco, as you can imagine, you don't even have to put a full business plan together for good deals, whether that's for buying a company or starting a company or buying real estate or whatever, most of the time the money flows to those kinds of things. It's the bad deals that get a lot of resistance on the raising of the capital. And so you shouldn't be scared around the money, which is, I think, what holds back most people. But if you start with just, hey, I want to buy one rental house that cash flows $100 a month or $200 a month, and you just start looking, even if you don't find one, You're going to learn so much by meeting with realtors and going looking at properties and running the numbers and finding your team and all that stuff. You're going to be incredibly educated. And it really, really is just time. Mm -hmm. And so if you can just invest yourselves for one year on buying one rental property, I think that the knowledge that you'll have by the end of that year, you know, Kim, they ended up buying several that year because after she did the first one, she's like, whoa, that wasn't so bad. Right. They ran out of money after the first one. And then they ended up buying two more because their friends said, hey, hey, if you find, you know, if you find another one, let me know, you know, like, you know what I mean? So there's reciprocity that happens and there's momentum. It's incredible word, momentum. And unless you create momentum, there will be nothing that will happen. So if you meet with a realtor, you're looking at deals, you're going and looking at properties, or you're meeting with property managers, it's all just time. It creates momentum and the things open up for you. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you, Ken. That momentum is exactly what it is. And it's an, another way to look at it is that su- success breeds success. So if you have that one property success in that first year, you're going to quickly find that you're looking for number two, buying number two, buying number three. And, and that success breeds more success. It's absolute momentum. It is. Great advice. Ken, thanks so much for sharing your time and your wisdom today. Please tell our listeners how they can find you or get more information about you and your programs. Our company is MC Companies, M-C-C-O-M-P-A-N-I-E-S.com. And my website for me personally is KenMcElroy.com, K-E-N-M-C-E-L-R-O-Y. And I will put all that in the show notes to make it easy for people to click on. And Ken, once again, thank you for your time. We'll have you back on later this year. Awesome, Marco. Thank you. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.